Well, due to the holiday season, uh, we have been uh, away from our series in the Gospel of Mark for about a month. We're jumping right back into it today in Mark chapter 10 with a bombshell topic that Jesus addresses in very plain words. I have titled our thoughts, The Divorce Dilemma. Uh, this topic is a bombshell topic because in our society today it's quite common. It always involves a lot of emotion. Uh, divorce under any circumstances always involves many emotional wounds, not only for the divorcing couple, but also for the children and grandchildren of, of those divorcing and for the extended families. But it might interest you to know that out of the top 10 divorce rates in the world, the United States is actually number 10. There are nine other countries with a higher rate of divorce than here in the USA, most of them in Eastern Europe, Kazakhstan, Russia, Belarus, Moldova, Ukraine, Lithuania, uh, and they have the highest divorce rates in the world. China also has a higher divorce rate than the United States. Actually, the highest divorce rate in the world belongs to the little chain of coral islands in the Indian Ocean called the Maldives. Their divorce rate is double that of the United States. And of course, we don't say that to let the United States off the hook, just to let you know uh, where we kind of stand in the world in our current divorce rate. All of that's to say, of course, there is divorce all over the globe, and when we examine the history of the world, we see that it is not a new social issue. Now, I know you may have turned to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10, and we will be there in a moment, but I want to begin today at building the foundation for all of this in Genesis in chapter 3. If you have your Bible with you, I trust you do, turn, if you would, to the book of Genesis in chapter 3. You all know, most of you certainly know, that this is the chapter that describes Adam and Eve rebelling against God, disobeying his one command, and plunging the entire creation into the curse of sin. But I just want to read to you one verse that explains to us why divorce exists. When God was pronouncing his judgment on Adam and Eve, he said to Eve in chapter 3 of Genesis in verse 16, he said to the woman, uh, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The result of the curse for Eve and for all women since was that childbirth would be painful, and her desire will be for her husband, and he would rule over her. Now, at first glance, you might be inclined to think that when God said your desire will be for your husband, he was speaking of a romantic desire to be married, or the desire to have a happy home, or uh, to make your husband happy. But the Hebrew word translated desire is only used one other place in the books of Moses, and that is in chapter 4, verse 7, right across the page from where we are right now, when God tells Cain that if he doesn't do the right thing, sin is lying or crouching at the door. Sin wants you, he said, but you must, sin desires you, but you must rule over it. It is exactly the same word and exactly the same sentence structure. And Hebrew scholars tell us that the word implies, the word desire there implies a longing or a desire to overcome. We might think of it as a, as a competition. 
as the desire to win. God said to Cain, sin wants to dominate or defeat you, Cain, but sin must, but you must dominate or defeat sin. So the curse of sin will create physical issues for Adam and Eve. It will also create relationship issues for Adam and Eve because Eve will want to dominate Adam. He said, your desire will be for your husband. It will be that desire to overwhelm, the desire to dominate, the desire to control. Eve will want to dominate Adam, and Adam will want to dominate Eve. There's going to be two sinners in a competitive marriage relationship, and they're going to lock horns over who is going to be in control. That is the root of divorce. There's going to be a battle in the house as a woman seeks to be independent and seeks to be dominant and seeks her will and seeks her way, and as the man tries to also be in control. Both are sinners, so it gets ugly. There is selfishness and willfulness and strong desires, and everybody wants their own way. The woman resists and rebels, and the man has ungracious, unkind, dominating attitudes. This is the conflict that leads to divorce. I don't like her anymore. I don't like him anymore. I don't want to live with her. I don't want to live with him. Many years ago, when our children were very young, we were praying with them before bedtime, talking about the Lord and the things of the Lord, and Carol said to the girls, I hope when you girls grow up that you will marry a fine Christian man. One daughter replied, I won't tell you which one, but one daughter replied, well, I want to marry a fine Christian man who will listen to me. And there it is, Genesis 3.16, 6,000 years later. The curse of sin is still totally with us. That is why there are literally millions of divorces worldwide every year. Everybody wants to be in control. And this did not begin in our modern era. There was divorce way back in the Old Testament, which is why the Pharisees came to Jesus with this question we'll be looking at in a moment, Mark 10. Of course, you must remember by now, if you have been with us for any of our studies in the Gospel of Mark, that the Pharisees never came to the Lord Jesus with an honest question. They were always trying to discredit him, to trap him, to make him look bad, to turn the people against him. They never came with an honest question that they really wanted an answer for. But please understand and remember with me that the world in which Jesus lived was not a pristine, sin-free world where every home was happy and every child was good and everyone was well-fed well and comfortable. It was a hard world, just as sin-filled as our world today. There were widows and orphans and broken homes and lost jobs and bankruptcies and sicknesses and broken bones and diseases and death and loss, and there was divorce even among the Jewish people. Look with me, at, before we turn to Mark, at the last book in the Old Testament for just a moment, the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Students of the Old Testament believe that Malachi was writing his prophetic book during the time of Nehemiah. The 70-year Babylonian captivity was over. 50,000 Jews had returned to the land of Israel. They had rebuilt the temple. 
Nehemiah lived about a hundred years after the first group of Jews had returned, and under his leadership, they rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. But the worship of the true and living God had become empty and ritualistic. Nehemiah was calling the people to repent and to return to the Lord. Malachi was denouncing their sins and calling for people to repent. But look briefly, if you would, at chapter 3. I want to read a, a section to you, starting in verse 16. Verse 13, rather. Of Malachi, I said chapter, chapter 3, it's actually chapter 2. Thank you very much for... working with me through that. Chapter 2 of Malachi and verse 13. Malachi is speaking to the children of Israel, kind of condemning them for some of their uh, uh, ways in which they had re rejected God. And then he talks about this. He said, this is the second thing you do. Verse 13 of chapter 2. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Why wouldn't God accept their offerings? He says, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Because he seeks godly offspring, therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. The background of all this, according to the book of Ezra, was that many men in Israel were marrying foreign women, and others were divorcing their Jewish wives, and then they were marrying foreign women. This issue was not an ethnic issue, it was a spiritual issue. The foreign men and women worshipped idols. God's people were not to marry people who did not know and worship the true and living God. That was an ancient principle that went all the way back to the book of Genesis. So Malachi denounces that practice with this very powerful statement, the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Do not deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. Uh, to deal treacherously means to betray, to deceive, to, to backstab, we might say in our modern idiom. Don't break your covenant before God, Malachi says. You are to raise godly offspring. You are to have a godly home life. You are to honor God in your family relationships. So stop this, God says. I hate divorce. You are covering your garment with violence. To, to cover with a garment is an Old Testament Hebrew expression for protection. So God says to these Jewish men in Malachi's day, you are not protecting your wives. You are breaking your covenant. You are breaking your promises to them. You're breaking your covenant with them. You are dealing treacherously with them, and I hate it. Now fast forward 400 years to the Gospel of Mark. 400 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ comes. He's here in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is recording his ministry for us, of course. 
And you know, based on a study of Jewish history, Malachi's preaching may have impacted some people. But there was not national repentance over this. And when we come to the ministry of the Lord Jesus, 400 years later, divorce was still common enough that the Pharisees wanted to entrap Jesus in some way and try to discredit him. So let's read these few verses and see their question and see Jesus' response. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Then he arose from there, of course this is the Lord Jesus, and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. It's actually a little spot called Perea, a uh, part of Judah, but on the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In Jesus' day, among the Pharisees and among the people, there were two opposing views about divorce, much like today. Actually, today we have among the followers of Jesus a very wide variety of viewpoints, uh, far more than just two. Our purpose today is not to answer every possible scenario. That would not be possible. But our purpose is to gain an understanding of the text and to answer several principles about marriage that the Bible teaches. One of the most common views of Jesus' day had been popularized by a well-known rabbi named Hillel. Hillel had died about 20 years before Jesus' ministry began, but his view was very popular. And his view, that many subscribed to, was that it stated that a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all if it displeased him. She might burn his dinner. These are some of the things he listed. She might burn his dinner. She might overcook the bread. She might undercook the bread. She might say something nasty about her mother-in-law, her husband's mother. She might not have her hair fixed correctly. She might spin around too quickly in her floor-length dress and let her ankles show in the presence of other men in the house. She might speak to a man in public to whom she was not related. Or the husband might just get tired of something about her and decide that he wants to try something else or somebody else. All of that might surprise you that a Jewish rabbi would teach this, but it is true. It was the most popular view of divorce in Jesus' day. Jesus had addressed the divorce issue in the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So Jesus' teaching on divorce was not unknown, actually it's quite well known. Uh, tens of thousands of people had heard Jesus teach on these topics. So the Pharisees, as we have said, were not interested in honest information. 
They were trying to entrap the Lord Jesus. And note that they were in the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan, as I mentioned a moment ago. That area was called Perea, and it was near the place where Herod Antipas lived. So we could also guess that the Pharisees, knowing what had happened to John the Baptist when he preached against Herod's marital infidelity, they might be hoping that Herod might find out Jesus' position on divorce and finish him off for them too. But that's the background of their question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus responds with a question. What did Moses say? What did Moses command you? You want to know if it's lawful? Okay, what did Moses say in the law? Well, Moses permitted it, they reply. You know, actually that is not entirely correct. We won't take the time to read the passage, but you're more than welcome to check it out. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. In that passage, Moses did not command or condone or even suggest a divorce. He didn't, quote, permit anything. He just recognized that it happens, and he placed some restrictions on it. And Moses also indicated that divorce brought defilement to the person and to the land of Israel. So many of the Pharisees and many of the rabbis had, had done a little bit of twisting of the scripture to accommodate their own desires. They say Moses permitted us, well Moses didn't really permit anything. He just accepted the fact that it was taking place and put some restrictions on it. The command that Moses had given was this, and you can read it, Deuteronomy 24, those first four verses. The command that Moses had given was that if a man found some uncleanness in his wife, and he wrote his wife a certificate of divorce and sent her away, that he couldn't take her back at a later time. If a man divorced his wife and she married somebody else, and then they divorced or the next husband died, the guy who had divorced her first couldn't remarry her for the second time. Uh, that, that was the command. There was no command or even suggestion to divorce, but there was a great seriousness attached to it. Moses is basically saying, you better think about this very carefully. Because if you give her a, a, a written bill of divorcement, and she goes and marries somebody else, and then that guy dies, or you change your mind later, you can't go back, Moses said. There was also no explanation in the end of Moses' law as to what uncleanness included. But the Hebrew term implies something that causes shame, something that defiles, obviously something sinful. But again, Moses did not explain all the implications of the term. Then, of course, Jesus, in his teaching with the, with, against the Pharisees and with all of the people who were there listening, Jesus gives a mini-Bible lesson to all who were there. He reminds them of the very beginning at creation. He quotes in our passage in Mark 10, he's quoting Genesis 2.24. There are several clear implications for us from this foundational passage. Look at it again here in the text. Verse 5, Jesus entered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That is a quote from Genesis 2.24. So several very clear implications for us from this foundational passage. 
The first one is this, that God establishes our gender when he creates us in the womb. That isn't something that we decide at some later time in life. Every single one of the 36 trillion cells in our bodies contains the XX or the XY that defines our gender. That is set at our conception in our mother's womb. A person may think whatever they wish to think, but you can't change your biology. God establishes our gender when he creates us. Then the second thing we see at creation, God made one male and one female, and he gave the female to the male to be his wife. He did not make two males and three females, then tell them to mix it up however they wanted, whenever they wanted. God set the pattern for one man, one woman. The scripture uses the word joined. Yeah, Jesus quotes it here, it's there in, in Genesis 2. The scripture uses the word joined to describe the union of man and woman. The word means to cling to, to be fastened to, to be glued to. It was intended to be a bond only broken by death. The fourth implication is two becoming one is a very powerful word picture. There is unity of purpose, unity of direction, unity of spirit, unity of identity. That is God's design, that is God's intention. The two are not designed to live separate lives going separate directions. Two become one. And then the fifth thing you see from Jesus' teaching here is that marriage is an act of God. It's a picture of the covenant relationship between God and his people. It's a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and those whom he has saved. The Apostle Paul clearly teaches that in Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage is designed by God. The pattern was set by God, and marriage is an act of God. So Jesus says that man should not tear it apart. And when people do tear it apart, Jesus says it is an act of adultery. Which brings us back to the title of our message, The Divorce Dilemma. It is a dilemma because human beings tear apart God's design all the time. So what do we do? I know many people who have divorced. You know many people who have divorced. Some of you listening to me today have been divorced. We all know many people who have lived with people and are living with people that they have not ever married. Another violation of God's design. But we are surrounded by violations of God's design and intentions. So what do we do? Well, Mark does not record this particular statement of Jesus, but Matthew does. And I would like to look at the parallel passage of this in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 19. If you were to read the first 10 verses of Matthew 19, you would see that this is the identical incident. Matthew just records a couple of different details, actually one significant detail for us, and it is in verse 8. In fact, let's just read the whole section here. You'll see it. Start in verse 1. You'll see that it's exactly the same scenario. The same thing happened. The same place. The same time. The same event. It came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, Matthew 19, 1, that he departed from Galilee, came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Same place, same time. Great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. 
The Pharisees also came to him, testing him. You see that again, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? They are giving the, the teaching of the rabbi Hillel. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And of course, you know, Moses did not command any such thing. You can read the passage for yourself in Deuteronomy 24. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They realized the seriousness of what Jesus was saying. That no, you can't just decide, oh, my wife burned the dinner today. I think I'll throw her out and go get somebody else who won't burn my dinner every night and other such ridiculous things. But the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, of course, records this very significant detail for us there in verse 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries another, commits adultery. First, as in Mark, of course, Jesus says, and very interesting, Jesus says the whole issue is based on hard hearts. He said in verse 8, Mark said it in his gospel, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses gave you this command. Many of you with medical backgrounds are familiar with the word sclerosis, a hardening, a stiffening, a, a thickening of some body tissue that results in some challenging, sometimes fatal physical conditions. Arteriosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries. Uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, we call it ALS, or nicknamed it Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, is, is another part of sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis, a sclerosis that affects the nervous system. Well, Jesus uses the exact Greek word scleros, to hard or harden, that came into medical science as sclerosis. Jesus says that this problem exists, this divorce and remarriage problem exists because, he says, you have a sin disease called the hardening of the inner man. You've got sclerosis of the heart. He said that's the only reason why Moses even wrote Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. You have sclerosis of the inner man. But when Jesus states now, that, or he then states the, the now famous exception clause, as it's called, Divorce, he says, is only biblical when it is for the cause of sexual immorality. And perhaps Jesus is identifying what Moses meant by the term uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24. We might add uh, uh, that we might even say unrepentant sexual immorality. And remember, repentance is not, I feel bad about this. Repentance is, I confess and I forsake. I change. If a person doesn't change, then it's not real repentance. 
If they just cry and feel badly, that's not repenting. Repenting is, I, I, I realize my sin before God, I confess it, I turn my back on it, I change. So unrepentant sexual immorality, we might say, is, is a reason for divorce. A legitimate biblical reason for divorce. For a person who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, divorce could be, it's not mandatory, but could be pursued if their spouse has committed sexual sin and will not truly repent. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul adds one more biblical reason for divorce in 1 Corinthians 7. We won't take the time to research that today, but you can read that chapter if you wish to. The Apostle Paul says that if an unbelieving spouse refuses to stay with the believing spouse because of their faith in Christ, then the believer can let them go, and they can remarry, but only in the Lord, only another believer in Jesus. So the only biblical grounds for a believer in Christ to divorce is if their spouse commits sexual sin that they will not repent of, or if an unbelieving spouse deserts you because of your faith in Christ, obviously there are many situations and many scenarios regarding divorce, and books could be written and have been written discussing and debating the various kinds of circumstances. But as followers of Jesus Christ, what should we do with the divorce marriage and, or the marriage and divorce dilemma? We are surrounded by it. So many of our friends have been touched by it. So many of our families, of, many people of you who are listening to me, have been touched in very personal and painful ways. What should we do with this marriage-divorce dilemma? It's such a huge and very common issue in our society. Well, let me just give you a few thoughts, and uh, certainly uh, not going to answer every question, as I say, but let me give you just a few, a few thoughts of what can we do with this dilemma. First thing is this, determine to live your life to please the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 is a great passage. The Apostle Paul said, I make it my aim to be well-pleasing to Him. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstance, whatever your background, wherever you are today, determine to live your life from here on out to please the Lord. Secondly, obey the Scripture. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands, the Apostle Paul taught in Ephesians 5. If that could happen, if men could love their wives the way that Christ loved the church, in fact, when you look at it in the, in the English Bible, it says husbands, love your wives exactly like Christ loved the church. That is a tall order that very few men, myself included, have ever lived up to, to love our wives exactly like Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, Paul said. But that kind of self-sacrificing dedication to our wives would go a long, long way to prohibiting or, or preventing divorce circumstances. Second half of that equation is wives respect your husbands. Give honor and respect to your husbands. Encourage them. So obey the scriptures. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, and wives, respect your husbands. A third thought, in, in all your relationships, 
especially your marriage relationship. Die to self and live for others. Don't let sclerosis of the inner man get a grip on you. Develop a soft heart for your spouse. And I say that to both men and women. Don't let sclerosis of the inner man get a grip on you. Develop a soft heart for your spouse. So many times, uh, people you counsel, people you talk to, they're just plain mean to one another. They just talk mean to one another. They're just hard-hearted and ornery to one another. Don't let sclerosis of the heart get a grip on you. Sclerosis of the inner man. Develop a soft heart for your spouse. Number four, if you are in a situation where you are contemplating divorce, think and pray and seek biblical counsel very seriously. There are only two legitimate biblical grounds for going through with a divorce, as we've said, unrepentant sexual sin and desertion of a believer by an unbelieving spouse. Number five, if you have a divorce in your background, perhaps with biblical grounds, perhaps not, but whatever your circumstance, God's forgiveness and restoration are always available. No one and no situation is beyond the reach of God's grace. Start where you are and live for God. The famous C.S. Lewis quote that I've given to you on several different occasions, you can't go back and rewrite your past, but you can start where you are and rewrite your future. God's forgiveness and restoration are always available because no one is beyond the reach of God's grace, regardless of their circumstances or their history. And then the sixth thought here, if you are living with someone to whom you are not married, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you need to get married. Stop living outside the will of God. I know our brief study today doesn't answer every question for every situation. I'm certainly open to discuss anything with anyone to try to unravel confusing situations and find a biblical resolution. But for all of us, regardless of our situation in life, regardless of our history, obey the scripture, die to self, live for God, be a testimony to your children and your grandchildren, Develop a soft heart in your relationships. Pray for God's mercy in your relationships and stand firmly for Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know that people listening to me today have a wide variety of backgrounds, a wide variety of life circumstances. And Lord, we are so grateful for your forgiveness. We are so grateful for your restoration. As King David said so powerfully in the Psalms, Lord, if, if, if iniquities were marked against us, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. So Lord, we all stand before you as sinners, saved by the grace of God. And I pray you would help us, Lord, to be sensitive to people's needs, to be sensitive to people's backgrounds and history. May we, Lord, support them as they seek the Lord and try to live for God and try to do what's right in your eyes. Lord, we know in our society today, this is such a, a common, common thing. 
And we just pray that you would help us as the people of the Lord to live in such a way that we would be pleasing to you. Guide us as we wrestle our way through these challenging issues of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.